A decade on what was gained and lost in Iraq. Today, March 19th, from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. Ten years ago, the Iraq war was about to start. We look back at the invasion and its messy aftermath. This former senior Pentagon official reflects on what went wrong. There had not been adequate uh, preparation for the idea of having to then help govern the country. We just did not think we were going to need to do that. And later, a former dictator who ruled Guatemala in the 1980s finally goes on trial for crimes against humanity. We hear why it took so long. They didn't want to touch him. Nobody wanted to touch the general. Plus how fracking is just as controversial in Britain as it is here. Fracking has never been undertaken in this country before. We're not prepared to be the guinea pigs. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Ten years ago today, the U.S. was on the eve of war in Iraq. Just a few hours prior, President George W. Bush had issued this unequivocal warning to Iraq's dictator. Saddam Hussein and his sons must leave Iraq within 48 hours. Their refusal to do so will result in military conflict, commenced at a time of our choosing. The invasion would begin on March 20, 2003, along with the nighttime shock and awe bombing of Baghdad. Saddam's regime would eventually fall, but as we all know too well, that was far from the end of the conflict. Even today, with U.S. combat troops gone from Iraq, the country still reels from the daily violence. This morning, for instance, news of yet another round of coordinated bombings killing dozens more people in Baghdad. Janine DiGiovanni is an award-winning correspondent. She was in Baghdad during the U.S.-led invasion. She wrote about her experience in the Daily Beast and joins us from her home in Paris. Janine, you begin your story from that iconic moment when a group of American soldiers is pulling down a statue of Saddam Hussein in the center of Baghdad. What do you remember thinking and feeling when that happened? For me, it was quite extraordinary because I had spent two months in the run-up to the shock and awe campaign in Iraq, actually, as an accredited journalist under the Saddam regime, working within the Ministry of Information. But funnily enough, even though I was monitored and we weren't allowed to use satellite phones at that time, we had to have them sealed up every night, I felt more free to move around in those two months than I did in the aftermath of the invasion when it became incredibly bloody. What were some of the other sharp contrasts for you in Baghdad, having been there before the invasion and now suddenly thereafter? Well, before, there was very much a sense of fear. I mean, which is inevitably, I work a lot in Syria now, comes when you work in any kind of dictatorship, Zimbabwe, it, it doesn't matter where you are. People who are living under a kind of regime of fear, they have all kinds of myths. And I remember one of the, the big ones was immediately after Saddam fled. I mean, the day that it happened, I was so conditioned to looking for this man who works for the Ministry of Information who, who had to open up my satellite phone every morning. And I went to look for him. And one of my colleagues, an Italian journalist, said, 
don't you understand what happened? It's over. It's over. They're all gone. And I went to look for all of the people who had worked in the Ministry of Information, and they had all fled. Those officials weren't the only ones. Your, your driver, your translator, many of your Iraqi friends had disappeared. Everyone disappeared. Everyone disappeared so quickly that you can't imagine it. I mean, I remember the, everyone trying to find a driver. No one could find a driver. I remember going off on foot, hitchhiking, literally, and getting a ride with some TV crew that picked me up on the road. And I went to one of Saddam's palaces. Mm-hmm. It was like a beehive of American soldiers. They were carrying boxes of equipment. They were bringing you know, freeze-dried food and cartons of water and video supplies. And I just walked through them and, and went upstairs. And um, it was extraordinary because this palace had been the place where a lot of the officials had been living during the shock and awe campaign and probably before in the run-up. And they had literally fled in the middle of the night. They just had left their shoes and their slippers and their aftershave. So upstairs in that palace, what was it, bedrooms and, you know, kind of like living quarters? Um, It had been this very opulent, gaudy, Iraqi-esque style palace. And there were bedrooms where they had been sleeping and living and, you know, carrying out, you know, the early days of the opposition and how they were going to struggle against the American invasion. Hmm. There were rumors that Saddam was going to light a ring of fire around Baghdad for the people that remain. And of course, none of this happened. What happened was Saddam and his henchmen fled, and the Americans invaded pretty easily. Janine, when was the last time you were in Iraq? Two years ago. I would go back once in a while, but I was pretty disgusted with what had happened. And having worked in the Middle East for many, many years, for for nearly 20 years, no one seemed to pay attention to history. And Time and time again, I think we see this, um, that you can't, in a sense, you really have to respect people's, people's boundaries and their own decisions whether or not to rise up against a dictator, which is, of course, what happened in the Arab Spring. Um, people took it into their own hands and decided it was time for them to overthrow dictators and, and turn to democracy. Janine DiGiovanni, a journalist and also the author of Ghosts by Daylight, Love, War and Redemption. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marco. A decade ago, just after the start of the war, a young Iraqi named Nechaban Yusuf went home. He'd been living in Britain after fleeing Saddam Hussein's regime in 1998. His family, though, remained in the northern Iraqi city of Mosul, and he wanted to visit them. Over the past 10 years, Yusuf has gone back and forth between Britain and Iraq many times. He says the war has changed many things, including how he identifies himself. I'm Sunni Kurdish. When I come, like, in 1998, the guy asked me, they say, are you Sunni or Shia? I say, to me, I don't know what's mean, Sunni or Shia. You didn't hear, like, in Iraq, that he's a Sunni or Shia, he's a Kurdish or Arabic. It was no different. All is Iraqi, Iraqi. Um, with the 10th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq upon us, so what do people in London say to you when you say you're from Iraq? I never say I'm from Iraq. I say I'm Turkish or I'm uh, from Lebanon, something like this. But if, like, sometimes we go to the disco or sometimes to the club, they say, where are you from? Because if you say Iraq, oh, he's maybe he's a terrorist, like, he's a danger. How does that make you feel that you can't identify yourself as a citizen of the country you were born in? It's not nice. Yeah, but what you, what you have to do? Sometimes we have to lie. <laughs> Netraban, when you speak with your father uh, back home in Iraq, what does he tell you about life there these days? 
He said it's very bad. Thinks it's very bad. It's not safe. If if you wanted to go to market and buy some tomatoes, is that safe? No, after six o'clock you can't get out. After six o'clock, if you get out, uh, it's no guarantee to be back. What what about the future? What what do you think Iraq is going to be like in another ten years? Another ten years is going to be same that ten years is the past. It's been ten years. Is a day after day it'll come bad, bad, bad. It's going to be same. Iraqi expatriate Netrban Youssef, who now lives in London. Thank you for speaking with us. You're welcome. No problem. The war in Iraq did not go according to plan. The hope back in 2003 was that a quick victory would be met with the help and gratitude of a liberated people, a move that could spark a democratic awakening throughout the Middle East. Instead, a stubborn insurgency was born, which morphed into a vicious sectarian conflict. Steve Bucci was at the Pentagon at the time of the invasion as a military assistant to then-Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. He's now director of the Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Steve, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. What did all of you in the senior circle of the Pentagon actually expect would happen after the U.S.-led overthrow of Saddam Hussein? Well, uh, going into it, we frankly expected it to be a pretty difficult fight. Uh, We were prepared for our soldiers to have to face uh, chemical weapons. They, They were all carrying all their stuff because we were positive that he had the weapons and facing ouster by a a coalition force coming against them, that he would surely use those weapons. But there were no weapons. And uh, once that was discovered, what were the plans after that, once the the country had been invaded? Uh, Well, to be honest with you, the, the plans were at best inadequate. And there had not been adequate uh, preparation for the idea of having to then help govern the country. We just did not think we were going to need to do that. Uh, Why not? Well, the uh, the impression we had was that the uh, the Iraqis were among the Middle Eastern people, one of the most sophisticated and educated populations. That their the sectarian uh, divisions that were there had been somehow broken down by years and years of Tito-like uh, government by Saddam Hussein, and that they would use this relative sophistication and and standing bureaucracy to uh, move forward as now a free people uh, liberated from Saddam and his uh, fellow thugs. And as it turned out, it it didn't really work that way. The the infrastructure both physically and uh, politically was far more fragile than we realized. And as it started to break down and, and then that gave rise to the insurgency and uh, that was not an expected outcome. It, it seems odd to a lot of people who are not experts that the, the Pentagon would not anticipate some kind of guerrilla-style resistance from the Sunni population. Well, uh, keep in mind that the Pentagon, while they do a lot of uh, political analysis, are are not the political analysts for the U.S. government. And uh, the the State Department was largely left out of the pre-war planning uh, obviously, Secretary Powell knew all about it, but they, they did not get a lot of their uh, folks mixed into it. Uh, and that was, frankly, probably a, a big error. Uh, had you known uh, what was on the horizon in, in Iraq in the four years after the invasion, would you have pushed back against the Bush administration uh, on, on the invasion? I think we would have probably addressed it differently. Um we wouldn't have gone in with quite as sunny a, a 
anticipation as to uh, how it was going to go. I think the decision to invade Iraq was made based on the intelligence that we had. Uh, I have to tell you, uh, one of my jobs for Secretary Rumsfeld was to read the intelligence every day that he got. I read every bit of intelligence that he received. And while it was not 100 percent uniform, there was about 85 to 90 percent of the intelligence every day, whether it was human intelligence, signals intelligence, imagery intelligence, U.S. intelligence, British, Russian, German, Chinese, all of those intelligence sources were at least 85 percent in agreement that he had weapons of mass destruction, that he would be willing to use them. So the decision was made to go in there. Uh, And then once you were in there, you couldn't just do an about face and walk away and all of a sudden, we had to start running a country, and uh, and the insurgency began to develop. You know, in a country with 25 million people, when you have a couple of thousand folks causing problems, it, it still is a big problem. Uh, and that was unfortunate. There is a report of chemical weapons being used in Syria today, still unconfirmed. But uh, do you see any parallels right now between Iraq and Syria? Uh, well, the uh, I think if we had not done Iraq and Syria was happening today, we'd probably respond more vigorously than than we are. Uh, there's a lot of reticence now, uh, not just because the administration's changed, but because, you know, you look at history and you try and learn from it. Uh, you know, Syria, we know, has chemical weapons. They brag about having chemical weapons, but th- there's not a good solution short of invading the country with a massive force to try and seize them all. And there's no taste for that uh, on anybody's part right now. Because of Iraq? Uh, Yeah. Steve Bucci was a military assistant to Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld at the time of the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. He's now director of the Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Steve, thank you. It's my pleasure. Still ahead on the show, another country, Zimbabwe, another strongman, Mugabe, But he's still around, very much so, on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A lot of Americans are now familiar with the term fracking. There's a lot of controversy here over this technology that's used to blast natural gas out of deep underground rock. On the one hand, fracking has opened up vast new supplies of gas and helped bring down both energy bills and carbon emissions. But it's also raised a host of environmental and health concerns. Now there's a rush to bring the technology to the rest of the world, and opponents worry about similar problems in other countries. Supporters, though, say it doesn't have to be that way. Christopher Wirth reports from Lancashire, England, home of Britain's first test wells. When a drilling company says it doesn't have time to show you its fracking wells, you can bet local opponents will step up. We're a matter of a few hundred yards away. (laughs) Sorry, I'm trying to avoid the potholes. (laughs) Lancashire residents Ian Roberts and Pam Foster drive down a rugged road near the British seaside town of Blackpool. The area is best known for farming and tourism, but it also sits on a lot of shale gas. And it's where a company called Quadrilla Resources has drilled Britain's first exploratory wells. It's just coming up here on the left. 
Pam Foster climbs out of the car and looks out over the well site. Stacks of shipping containers and a blue metal tank rise above the surrounding fields. Residents like Foster have heard horror stories, some verified and some not, about pollution from fracking in the U.S. People in America who live near fracking sites, there there are numerous reports of health issues. And you've got to remember that horizontal fracking has never been undertaken in this country before. We're not prepared to be the guinea pigs. Those worries grew in 2011 when Quadrilla's operations here caused two small earthquakes. The government promptly suspended test drilling, but it lifted the ban late last year, and the company assures Britons that fracking is safe. What I keep saying to people is, look, it doesn't have to follow exactly every step of what happened in the U.S. Quadrilla's CEO, Francis Egan, says he's also heard horror stories about fracking, but he believes the U.K. and Europe can learn from a decade of American trial and error. And it is recognized that the U.K. regulatory regime is, if not the best, up there with the best in the world. The International Energy Agency would seem to agree. It says British and European practices are generally far stricter than those in the U.S. And Paul Younger, an engineer at the University of Glasgow, says the industry's record in the U.S. has given fracking a reputation it doesn't deserve. It's been very unfortunate for us in Europe because the way things have gone in the States has been to the discredit of the industry as a whole, sadly. Younger says the U.K. owes its more rigorous oversight to decades of experience with its offshore oil and gas industry. Take the way wells are constructed. Standard practice in the U.S. is to line wells with two layers of concrete and steel casings. That's according to a study by the U.K.'s Royal Society that Younger contributed to last year. In the U.K., it says companies use at least three layers of casings to better guard against leaks. Then there's the water. A typical frack well can produce large amounts of contaminated wastewater. In the U.S., much of it's stored in large open pits. A practice Younger shakes his head at. You know, the idea of just digging a pond and sloshing the water in there and hoping for the best, there's no way in the U.K. He says drillers in the U.K. will be required to use double-line steel tanks. And unlike parts of the U.S., they'll have to fully treat wastewater before it's disposed of. Then there are the chemicals mixed in that water. They've been one of the most controversial aspects of fracking. In the U.S., drillers can keep many of these chemicals secret. Not here, says Younger. There's no secrecy allowed whatsoever, and they will simply not allow anything that would not be permissible in drinking water. For the time being, Quadrilla says it only plans to use one chemical in its test wells, a friction-reducing substance called polyacrylamide. Taken together, Younger says these stricter practices will ensure that the kind of reckless mistakes made in the U.S. won't be repeated in the U.K., but not everyone is convinced. When you actually dig a little bit beneath the surface, you start to realize that actually it's not regulated at all. Mike Hill is a former oil and gas engineer who's been an advisor on fracking for the Lancashire government. He says the U.K.'s regulatory approach was designed for remote offshore rigs in the North Sea, not wells near crowded towns and cities. There are no regulations specific to hydraulic fracturing. When you move large-scale gas production exploration to within a few hundred metres of large urban conurbations, you need to take into account public health. And we don't have regulations for doing that. In fact, I think at this stage we are considerably less protected than you are now in the States. And when it comes to compliance, Hill says UK regulators depend too much on what a company says it does. There's no actual inspections at all. 
The UK's health and safety executive says it did inspect two of Quadrilla's test wells two years ago, but that was mostly to check worker safety. To assess well integrity, the regulator says it relies on a dialogue with the company. But even British lawmakers aren't sure if that's good enough. Tim Yeo chairs the Parliament's Committee on Energy and Climate Change. I don't know whether the existing Quadrilla operations are being inspected sufficiently frequently. And as you've mentioned it, I will ask some questions and just investigate that. The British government has warned Quadrilla over failure to report damage to one of its wells. And just last week, the company announced it was suspending work at one well site to complete an environmental impact assessment. But the government is still eager to develop a shale gas industry to help replace the country's dwindling supply of gas from the North Sea. And Yo says specific new regulations will be put in place to ensure that fracking is safe. On the streets of Lancashire, some residents say they support fracking as long as it is done carefully. While opponents foresee an environmental nightmare, Ronald John Gower hopes a shale gas revolution will help revive the UK's sluggish economy. You know, we are sort of desperate for energy. As long as we get things a little bit cheaper, like in America, they're getting gas there a lot cheaper and it's helped their economy, hasn't it? The question is, can you have both low gas prices and tougher regulations? One new report suggests not. That partly because of environmental concerns, the UK won't see a flood of cheap shale gas. For The World, I'm Christopher Wirth, Lancashire, England. We recently reported on the possibility that China could become the next frontier for fracking. Listen to that story and check out other reports from our environment desk at theworld.org. Today's GeoQuiz has an American culinary twist. The city we want you to name was named after a French city located on the banks of the Loire River. Its American counterpart is on the Mississippi River. There's a lot of French and Cajun influence there. You can see it in the city's architecture and taste it in its distinctive cuisine. But the food in the city is more than just crawfish étouffée and beignet. Spanish, Italian, Native American, and African culinary traditions are also part of the stew in this melting pot of flavors. I'm sure by now you can name the city we're talking about. But hang in there for the answer anyway. The editor-in-chief of Saveur magazine will be joining us to tell us all about its food traditions. That's coming up later in the program. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, German composer Richard Wagner was known for his great works, but also for his anti-Semitism. So why would an Israeli scholar want to rehabilitate his image? Wagner is more than a musician. He is also a philosopher and he is a total artist in his art. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, 
providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The small Central American nation of Guatemala made history today with the opening of a landmark trial. The accused is a former Guatemalan head of state, a powerful former general and dictator who ruled during one of the bloodiest chapters in the country's long civil war. Now he's facing charges of genocide and crimes against humanity. Jill Replogle of the public radio collaboration Fronteras reports on what this trial means to people in the U.S., from human rights advocates to Guatemalan immigrants. Guatemala's 36-year-long civil war was one of the bloodiest and most vicious of modern times, pitting state security forces and their allies against leftist rebels. By the war's end in 1996, and in a country one-fourth the size of California, more than 200,000 people were killed or disappeared. But one period was particularly brutal. For 17 months in 1982 and 83, General Efrain Rios Montt ruled Guatemala with an iron fist. As he sought to squash out Marxist guerrilla forces and their supporters, thousands of Guatemalans were raped, tortured, and slaughtered by the army he commanded. In this scene from the documentary, When the Mountains Tremble, filmed in 1982, Indigenous Mayan women dressed in hand-woven blouses wail as they look upon a line of corpses, victims of a recent massacre in their remote village. I mean, I've seen brutality and had to analyze it through these cases in many places in Latin America and other regions. Almudena Bernabeo is a Spanish lawyer at San Francisco's Center for Justice and Accountability. She's part of a worldwide legal team that's worked for 13 years to bring former President Rios Montt to trial. And what happened in Guatemala is very specific in the intensity, the, the premeditation. After the war, a United Nations Truth Commission documented more than 600 massacres carried out by the Guatemalan army and its proxies. In some Mayan territories, up to 90 percent of villages were destroyed, the commission found. A group of survivors and human rights organizations first filed genocide charges against Riosmont in Spain, but for years he evaded extradition. In 2007, he won a seat in Guatemala's Congress. Many hoped the man who once kept savage order would get rid of the gangs and drug lords who were terrorizing everyday citizens. And Riosmont continued to wield power in high places, including the courts. They didn't want to touch him. Nobody wanted to touch the general. Until recently, that is. Rios Montt's term in Congress ended in January 2012. Two weeks later, he was indicted for genocide in his home country. Bernabeu says a lot of things came together to change the aging dictator's fate. An intrepid attorney general, international pressure, and mounting evidence in the form of secret army plans and mass graves still being unearthed to this day. Plus, she says, survivors of the genocide have been dogged. The Guatemalan are... Uh, quiet, never in your face, never confrontational, but they never stop what they need to do. It's been nearly three decades, 30 years of waiting for this moment to arrive. Marvin Perez was among a group of students captured by Guatemalan police shortly after Rios Montt became president in 1982. They were interrogated and tortured in a police station and then in a secret jail. 
Perez was eventually released and his family left for the United States a few months later. He now lives in Los Angeles. Perez will follow the trial closely, and he says he's actually glad Rios Montt is getting a fair trial. And not like he and his soldiers in his state did 30 years ago, assassinating, disappearing, and executing thousands of innocent Guatemalans who were denied the opportunity to face a legitimate and transparent trial, the kind of trial that today he has the opportunity to face. The melody of Guatemalan marimba accompanies a recent dinner held in the parking lot of a San Diego apartment complex. It's a fundraiser organized by Guatemalan expats to support rural schools back home. More than one million Guatemalans now live in the U.S. Thousands of them arrived after fleeing the violence in their home country. But not all are gripped by the trial of their notorious former president. Some here barely knew it was happening. Still, Alonso Mendez remembers the fear that plagued his country in the 80s. Mendez says everyone was scared of the army, of their own president, actually. The guy who was supposed to defend the country, he's the one people were most afraid of, he says. Rios Montt is now 86 years old, but if convicted, he won't go to jail. Like in much of Latin America, elderly convicts are often put under house arrest. Not exactly a stiff punishment for genocide. Still, Bernabeu, the lawyer, says the trial itself shows rare judicial power in Guatemala. Of course, she hopes he will be convicted of genocide. And then, you know, the sentence. And hopefully they pronounce it in a microphone with the room packed. You know, to me, I think it's the power of that symbol. And that will be there forever. The trial is expected to last several months. For The World, I'm Jill Replogle in San Diego. Rios Montt was a dictator of Guatemala for a relatively short period of time, just 17 months. Contrast that with Zimbabwe's Robert Mugabe. He's ruled his country in southern Africa with an iron fist for more than 30 years. Many would like Mugabe to also go to trial for abuses committed under his regime, and yet he continues to hang on, and his authoritarian regime continues to intimidate, most recently by arresting three senior opposition politicians and also Zimbabwe's best-known human rights lawyer, Beatrice Mitetwa. New York Times correspondent Lydia Polgreen is in the capital, Harare, right now. Lydia, remind our listeners who Beatrice Matetwa is and what does she come to symbolize in Zimbabwe? Well, Beatrice Matetwa is one of the best-known lawyers in Zimbabwe. She's the person you call if you're in trouble and you're a uh, political activist, if you run an or a charity organization that has incurred the wrath of the government of Zimbabwe. When one of our correspondents, Barry Birak, was arrested just before the 2008 election, she was his lawyer and uh, was ultimately able to get him uh, get him out of jail. So she really has come to symbolize the fight for human rights, individual rights, the rights of charities and others to provide services here in Zimbabwe. In the past, uh, her role as a lawyer and an officer of the court has largely been respected. And I think what a lot of people are struggling with is now as she prepares to spend her third night in jail is why suddenly now is this person who has played this important role finding herself being a defendant? Do you have any answers to why now? Zimbabwe has just had a referendum to approve a new constitution. The vote wasn't terribly controversial, but there has been a crackdown going on on aid groups and on political dissidents in Zimbabwe over the past few months. And I think people are fearful that as the country moves towards presidential elections, you're going to see more of this this kind of uh, repression. 
Right. So that election uh, coming up uh, this July, Mugabe is 89 and has been in power 33 years. Is there anything or anyone that can stop Mugabe in the election in July? Robert Mugabe remains very much unpopular. He did not get the most votes in the 2008 election. As you might recall, Morgan Changarai, his opponent, did. And there was supposed to be a runoff. The runoff was canceled because uh, Morgan Changarai said he didn't want to have any more violence. Hundreds of people were killed and injured. I think the question now is, does that fervor still exist to make a fundamental change in direction in Zimbabwe? I think there's been a great deal of disillusionment and disappointment with the movement for democratic change, the main opposition party. Mm. You know, there have been lots of allegations of corruption. Um, I think that they haven't been able to achieve many of the things that they set out to do, reforming the police force, ensuring that there wouldn't be the kind of violence that there, would, that there was in 2008. That's something that they've made almost no headway on. Yes, the economy is doing quite a bit better since the uh, U.S. dollar was introduced in, in place of the Zimbabwean dollar. You don't have those, you know, $300 trillion bills anymore. Right. But the country is still waiting to figure out where its future lies. Um, Robert Mugabe is 89 years old. Under the new constitution, he can serve two more terms, which means that at the end of those two terms, he'd be 99. I think for a lot of Zimbabweans, they think that the only way that uh, Robert Mugabe is going to leave power is feet first. I don't want to let you go without asking you about uh, this uh, visit to Italy uh, by Mugabe. He's under a European Union travel ban, but he arrived in Italy this week for the inauguration of the Pope. Uh, I guess he can skirt the ban on religious grounds. There seems to be some sort of arrangement that allows him to go, uh, you know, via kind of diplomatic envelope, as it were, um, <laughs> into Vatican, into the Vatican without uh, without actually entering Italian territory, or at least without risk of arrest. There are a lot of very devout Catholics in this country, and and I think that um, given Robert Mugabe's devotion to the Catholic Church, uh, you know, he, he went to Catholic schools, and he credits the Catholic Church with providing him with an education. I don't know that a lot of people would begrudge him. Um, the right as a uh, as a head of state to uh, to go and see uh, the new pope be inaugurated but it certainly has raised a lot of eyebrows mm. you know on twitter and, and elsewhere given the kind of vague future for zimbabwe at this point and the the uneasiness with which a lot of zimbabweans kind of see that future is there one person you spoke with you've been speaking with in harare who kind of has captured where the country's at right now Yes, uh, I spoke to a member of parliament of the MDC who... That's the opposition was, party, yeah. Yeah, of the main opposition party. And um, he told me, look, you know, the only thing that's really holding us all together is a desire to get rid of Robert Mugabe. And we'll do anything and we'll all stick together until that task is achieved. So I think, I think what you're seeing right now is an opposition that's determined to turn a page a party that uh, in power that is determined to hold on, and a lot of questions about whether you know what the future is going to hold for a country that you know was once one of Africa's most prosperous and has been on really really hard times in the last decade. New York Times correspondent Lydia Paul Green speaking with us from Zimbabwe's capital Harare. Thanks for your time, Lydia. Thank you. By the way, there's a new film out about Beatrice Mitetwa, the Zimbabwean human rights lawyer who's just been arrested. You can see the film's trailer and learn a bit more about this important figure at theworld.org. President Obama kicks off his tour of the Middle East tomorrow. He goes to Israel first. The White House says one of the president's goals there is to speak directly to the Israeli public. He's scheduled to do just that on Thursday with a speech in Jerusalem to an audience of Israeli university students. The event has already generated some controversies, though, as the world's Matthew Bell reports. 
Students from Ariel University got on buses this morning to hold a protest outside the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem. They say they're being excluded from President Obama's big speech. American officials invited students from other Israeli universities, so why not Ariel? The U.S. Embassy says it doesn't have a joint program there. But the young people here suspect the real reason has more to do with location. Around 14,000 students attend Ariel University, which sits deep inside the West Bank on the edge of a large Jewish settlement. It took a long and noisy legal battle, but the institution was granted full status as an Israeli university last year. Most students I spoke with on campus this morning told me that's old news now, and they're disappointed President Obama appears to be giving them the cold shoulder. I see Ariel as part of this country. Reyut Menachem is a 26-year-old psychology student. She says Mr. Obama would be missing an opportunity if he doesn't engage with students here. Even though you don't agree with some people, doesn't mean you shouldn't hear them. Doesn't mean you shouldn't, you know, answer some questions they have. This is the main principle that I think we should all follow. And it will be, I think, a better place if we all know it. Just listen to what the other have to say. We can agree to disagree. In that same spirit of engagement, activists from Israeli settlements say they would be keen for a visit by President Obama this week. Avi Zimmerman is with the Ariel Development Fund. After decades of a failed peace process, Zimmerman says it would make perfect sense for Barack Obama to engage Israelis living on the other side of the green line that divides Israel from the West Bank. You cannot solve any situation by talking about communities, either about the Israeli or the Palestinian communities. The only way to make peace is between neighbors. Perhaps we don't need anyone uh, from the outside meddling in our business, but if we do, they need to come here. To have meetings elsewhere is simply irrelevant. If Mr. Obama did decide to tour the settlement of Ariel, Zimmerman says he would show him the industrial zone that employs several thousand Palestinians. He would talk about joint research projects at the university between Israelis and Palestinians, and he would introduce him to some of Ariel's 20,000 residents. But what about long-standing U.S. support for the two-state solution? It's really easy to think about it a Palestinian state when you don't have to pay the price for it. Tamar Asraf is a spokeswoman for the Benjamin Regional Council of West Bank Settlements. She says any peace agreement that requires evacuating tens of thousands of Israeli settlers from their homes is no solution. I think that we have to be here because, first of all, it's our homeland. And second of all, because I think the future of Israel will be under a huge question mark if we're not going to be here. I think we cannot allow ourselves to have another enemy country in this area. We have enough enemies around us. Asraf helped produce this YouTube video to woo President Obama. Around 60,000 Israeli settlers live in her region, and she says the president will already be visiting Ramallah, the de facto capital of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. So why doesn't he also visit one of the settlements nearby? But to get the settlers' view of things, Mr. Obama doesn't really have to. And that's because of the makeup of the new Israeli government. The new defense minister advocates expanding the settlements. The new housing minister lives in a settlement and belongs to a political party that opposes the creation of a Palestinian state. And then there's the foreign minister-in-waiting, who also lives in a settlement, 
and says freezing settlement growth as a concession to the Palestinians is not an option. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. So we're putting an American twist on our geo-quiz today. We're looking for a U.S. city with a distinctive cuisine concocted by generations of immigrants. And we're not just talking Cajun flavors and seafood gumbos. This melting pot of flavors is, of course... New Orleans. Yeah, that's James Osland, editor-in-chief of Saver magazine. James, you can hear a lot of the planet in the music of New Orleans, the Caribbean, Latin America. I bet you'd agree that you can actually taste many foods and spices of the world in New Orleans. That is just absolutely true. And, and traditionally, of course, you've got your Cajun flavors. And when you're talking about Cajun flavors, that you know, really means the food of the Acadians who migrated down from New Brunswick and Maine and that part of North America and found the swamps of Louisiana to be their new home and great, you know, intensely flavored dishes and and a lot of game and just really fabulous direct food. And then, on the other hand, you're talking about Creole dishes. Creole is just a crazy hodgepodge of French and Spanish and Caribbean, and it's far more light and elegant, and it almost always involves butter. And <laughs> right in the middle of all that, you've got gumbo, the quintessential New Orleans dish. So is there a dish in New Orleans that you start eating, and it's like, where is this from? And then you start looking into it, and it's like from many different places. I'd probably go back to gumbo. I mean, you've got your bit of Africa there. You've got okra, you know, which is really the essential thickener of the stew. You've got andouille sausage, which is one of the great Cajun gifts to the world of food. And then you've got the fact that gumbo is basically essentially a bouillabaisse, a kind of like really rough-hewn bouillabaisse. My God, it's just one of the most delicious foods on the planet. Then there's the muffaletta, which has always kind of reminded me of an Italian sub. That is just absolutely true. Boy, you know, that probably really is my, my second favorite New Orleans food. And, of course, there's the Central Grocery, that great classic New Orleans place where you get what is probably the world's best muffaletta. But there are so many other dishes, too, on the Creole side. You've got shrimp Creole, shrimp remoulade, pompano on papillot. You know, in the Saver article, uh, there's some uh, great-looking restaurants there. But I'm wondering, has that traditional kind of old-world cuisine gone too upscale and is now kind of unrecognizable from where it originated? That's one of the most glorious things about New Orleans is how little it budges. You can step into any number of restaurants from Galatoires to Two Jigs to Dookie Chases and essentially be in the same restaurant your grandparents might have been in in the 1940s or 1950s. It's just so exquisitely in amber eating out in New Orleans. I mean, I think in so many ways it's America's most distinctive food city. James Oseland, editor-in-chief of Saver, which is featuring New Orleans in the April edition. Oh, I want to get on a plane right now. <laughs> Seriously, all this talk. Always good to speak with you, James. Thanks. Great to talk to you. Finally today, rethinking Wagner, the 19th century German composer Richard Wagner, left behind some great works of music and many devoted fans. But in Israel, Wagner has long been a taboo because he was a notorious anti-Semite and because he was one of Hitler's favorite composers. But now an Israeli researcher says it may be time to re-examine Wagner's legacy. Daniela Cheslow has a story from Tel Aviv. When most people think of Richard Wagner, this probably comes to mind. 
even perhaps this. Kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. But in Israel, it's not Wagner's music people think about when they hear his name. Wagner has become a symbol of the rage against what the Germans have done to the Jewish people. Dina Porat is chief historian at Israel's Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial. Wagner died six years before Hitler was born, but his music featured at almost every Nazi rally. Wagner himself published an essay in 1850 claiming that Jewish composers were inferior to German ones. And so his music has been more or less banned in Israel since 1938. But an Israeli musicologist says it may be time to rethink Richard Wagner. Wagner is more than a musician. He is also a philosopher and he is a total artist in his art. Irad Atir, a doctoral student at Barilan University near Tel Aviv, studied each of Wagner's ten major operas. The question is uh, about how we can see uh, Wagner's ideology in his operas. And I found that Wagner saw the Jews not in one way, it's more complicated. Atir says Wagner borrowed a lot from Jewish musicians. Take the Wedding March, composed by Felix Mendelssohn, grandson of the Jewish philosopher Moses Mendelssohn. Atir says it's the inspiration for the character Freya, the goddess of love in Wagner's Ring Cycle. And even the dramatic Ride of the Valkyries, Atir says it's based on a Mendelssohn piece called The Overture to Fingal's Cave. Let's hear first the Mendelssohn's. And now the Ride of the Valkyries by Wagner. Although Wagner wrote against Mendelssohn, he wrote also that he was very much talented. So we can see that he could appreciate Mendelssohn. Besides the borrowing, Atir points out that there are Jewish characters in Wagner's operas, and they're not always the bad guys, as you might expect. It means that Wagner could see Germans that can be redeemed and also Jews that can be redeemed. Wagner wanted this fall of the gods, of aristocracy and so on. He wrote also that the liberal Judaism can help the German people. So far, Atir's ideas have gotten a cold reception, even in Germany. What the Nazis did with the Jews in Bayreuth, it's the problem of the Nazis. Historian Hannes Heer thinks Atir was too soft on Wagner. Heer created an exhibit called Silenced Voices about Jewish musicians who died in the Holocaust. He mounted the show in Bayreuth, in the garden right outside Wagner's opera house. He's a fanatic. He's a fanatic anti-Semite. In Jerusalem, Jonathan Livni heads the Israel Wagner Society. It's devoted to ending the ban on Wagner. Wagner wrote a terrible book on Jews in music, in which he proposed terrible things about the Jews to try and prove that he was not an anti-Semite is futile. But it's irrelevant. There's no such thing as anti-Semitic music. Each person should be entitled to listen to the music that he wishes to listen, regardless of the person who wrote it. Atir says he plans to start a lecture series based on his research, and he hopes it will help to separate Wagner the composer and artist 
from his legacy as a champion of racial supremacy. For The World, I'm Daniela Cheslow, Tel Aviv. That's all for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.